0: You're listening to Beyond Bitcoin. It's the 19th of November. I'm Arthur Falls, and this is not investment advice. While he was on the show a while back, Tim Swanson suggested I read a white paper entitled Tendermint, Consensus Without Mining. It was tough going. For a guy with zero background in computer science, but it was really engagingly written and a breath of fresh air after hearing nothing but proof of work, proof of stake for so long to come across a new and maybe superior means of securing a blockchain. I got in touch with the author Jay Quan, who's a cryptocurrency developer and thinker who's worked in various fields in the space and he agreed to come onto the show to discuss the paper and other tangentially related things. Hello, Arthur. I'm doing good. How are you? great, man. Great. hey, thanks heaps for the uh, heaps for the the reading list. I guess it's um there was tons of great stuff in there
1: yeah i, I think it's a great thing to uh, read through the sidechain uh, technology discussion is very interesting Ripple, rippling forks and other horrors <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah, you know it's the funny thing about rippling forks because a lot of the consensus algorithms that we see today have forking blockchains and it happens often and we take it for granted but uh, there are ways to get around that
0: it is and uh, in the um, tandemman obviously has is one solution do you want to just introduce yourself for uh, for the sake of formality
1: i can try um, yeah. my name is jake quan um, i've been thinking about Cryptocurrencies for the past year, I have a background in computer science, but not that that matters Um, In the beginning of the year, I sought out to start an altcoin uh, cryptocurrency exchange, but uh, about six months ago, I discovered uh, uh, a solution to a problem that I've been searching for, which is how to solve the mining problem of Bitcoin I, I stumbled upon it finally and I've been working on that solution since and that is tendermint
0: could you kind of outline the, the design philosophy of tendermint the you know the problem that you're trying to solve with mining and the uh, and the solution that you've come across
1: yeah um, I'll start with these problems with mining um, and I can name a couple Um And uh, I think these are all reasons why proof-of-work mining is going to fade away uh, slowly. And they are problems such as it's too slow to confirm. I mean, it takes like an hour, uh, even in Bitcoin, to confirm a transaction of a reasonable size. Uh, Another is that it's too energy intensive um, and that means it has consequences for the environment. And uh, I think I'll get back to this in just a bit. A third would be that it's not compatible with an ecosystem of competing blockchains. And I think uh, the kind of cryptocurrency future I want to see is one where there's a competition of currencies. That means... You know, sovereign blockchains uh, competing with each other, and you can't have uh, you know uh, a whole lot of secure competing blockchains if uh, you're all competing for energy. Um, and the last one might be uh, it, it forks too often. So Bitcoin and proof of work, and in fact, a lot of cryptocurrency consensus algorithms today, they fork too often, and it makes it for a very difficult API, and it makes side change difficult. Um, and going back to uh, the energy intensiveness, you know, it's like uh, I did a knack calculation uh, like six, no, actually a while ago, years ago, and it kind of shocked me to realize that Bitcoin really can't grow to become a global dominant currency just because of the uh, energy requirements. I mean, the fact that Uh, It has a preset reward schedule and the fact that, uh, you know, economically, the miners will compete to uh, uh, maximize their energy expenditure to increase their hash rate. It all means that it's going to have devastating consequences.
0: But does does it follow on from that, that it won't become a uh, global currency? You know, um, that's a good question.
1: And in the absence of other solutions uh, that don't require energy, I can see Bitcoin being a viable solution. And it might answer the question to, you know, people saying, well, you know, Bitcoin mining isn't wasteful because it's doing useful work and consensus just takes that much energy. All right. But if I can show you another algorithm that um, doesn't require that energy, then it becomes clear that all that mining is wasteful. And uh, as soon as people realize that, uh, people will switch over. Uh, nobody wants to pay that kind of uh, uh, that kind of reward to keep the network going. So I think uh, the uh, the future of proof uh, of proof of work m- mining is uh, it's not so bright.
0: And so, what's the uh, what is the alternative that you propose? Um, the alternative that I propose uh, it's something
1: that uh it's not you know i didn't come up with it all on my own um it's uh it it partially uses uh uh, a solution that uh already exists in academia and uh a lot of people don't have access to this kind of research because it's all behind paywalls um and uh i don't know at one point i decided to really look into this problem of byzantine consensus and uh, i got a subscription to like acm And I was reading all these research papers, and uh, I was lucky enough to encounter uh, some solutions that just fit the bill. Um, So, there's multiple parts to the solution, but uh, let's talk about uh, Byzantine consensus uh, in general. So, you might have heard uh, this thing called the FLP, impossibility result.
0: Uh, No, I haven't. Okay. Okay.
1: This is way back in, I think, like 1983 or something, and there was this paper that came out uh, by researchers, and they determined that, you know, in the absence of any assumptions about the uh, nature of time or the nature of the network, you know, the latency and so forth, it's impossible to achieve consensus uh, in general, even with one faulty process. And so that kind of sounds like, you know, consensus is impossible. Mm, But since then, since 1980, um, there's been all kinds of uh, research that came out uh, trying to circumvent the FLP impossibility result. And uh, and some of the ways to get around it are like sacrificing determinism. You know, like Bitcoin kind of does that. But the gist of it is uh, eventually you're likely to... Uh, converge upon a consensus so by sacrificing determinism you can reach consensus okay another way is to add some kind of assumption of time Um, like you can assume that everybody has an accurate clock that is globally synchronized or you can assume um, that the network that the internet is partially synchronous and that means uh there's a there's a latency in the network that is finite you don't have to know what the maximum latency is, but you just have to know that it's finite. And it turns out that's enough to solve the problem. Another way might be to add an oracle. Um, you know, some of these things that we see, uh, we hear about with uh, smart oracles are one way to solve consensus. So
0: those are some of the ways to solve the uh, consensus uh, problem. Uh, before we move on, what do you, uh, when you say by sacrificing determinism, could you explain what exactly you mean by that in the context of say, Bitcoin? Let's see. In academic
1: literature, uh, what they mean by sacrificing determinism is usually uh, there's a, you assume that all the players, like all the nodes of the network, um, have access to a random coin. And it could either be locally, uh, it could be a local coin where like uh, a node flips its own local coin, or it could be a global coin where the global network somehow agrees upon the value of the flip of the coin. If you have the latter one, where the global network agrees agrees on the uh, value of the flip, then uh, it's much more efficient. But either way, you can achieve consensus just by having that kind of random element to it, and it'll. It'll uh, bypass the uh, FLP impossibility result. We haven't uh, seen solutions that use this technique, but uh, we're—I we're, believe—we're going to in the future.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what it, what's out there. You know what um, what uh, approaches people are taking and what we, what we've seen and what we haven't. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's, yeah, man.
1: I'm I'm not good at talking, so no, this it's not. It's, it's fun, man. Isn't it? Yeah. All right. Um, so, Tendermint takes uh, the second approach to circumventing the FLP impossibility result, which is assuming uh, some element of time in the network. And uh, if you uh, search for this paper uh, by Dwork, Lynch, and Stockmayer um, titled Consensus in the Presence of Partial Synchrony, um, it explains one way uh, to assume uh, something small about uh, the nature of the network, namely that it has. It has a bounded latency. You don't have to know what the what the latency is, what the maximum latency of the network is, but it's bounded. And uh, it tells you how you can uh, construct a protocol that achieves consensus despite um, Byzantine faults. And by Byzantine faults, I mean, um, you know, despite um, uh, actors who were trying to uh, launch a double spend attack. All right. So uh, I, I took… The uh, I'm going to call it the DLS protocol, Uh, it was published in 1988 uh, by Dwork, Lynch and Stockmeyer, Consensus in the Presence of Partial Synchrony, and um, it's not perfectly suited uh, as it is for something like cryptocurrencies, but if you make a few modifications, it's perfect for the blockchain. Uh, namely, you know, you, you have to optimize it for the blockchain. So that means, uh, well, this is getting into technical details, but uh, the way it works is first, uh, it happens in rounds. Um, so it's a round-based protocol. Mm-hmm. At every round, there's a proposer that is chosen. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not determined how it's chosen in the paper, but uh, I chose a round-rope, uh, round-robin protocol, and. Uh, The first step of the round in the paper is uh, the uh, participants, and I'm going to call them validators because they help achieve consensus. The validators uh, first uh, broadcast the solutions that are acceptable. And then the second step is the proposer uh, chooses amongst those uh, acceptable solutions the one that it proposes. But that's not suitable, uh, I don't think, in uh, blockchains. So uh, I reordered it so that the first step is the proposal. And then the second step is people pre-voting on the proposal. That's really detailed. (laughs) Um, Another thing I did uh, that's not related is um, uh, making it work for a gossip network. So in the original paper, it uh, assumed a point-to-point Uh, Network, so it assumes that I can talk to any node Um, and uh, But the way that Bitcoin works the way that BitTorrent works and a lot of these decentralized protocols work and And I think it's great. It sort of assumes, you know something like a random connected graph You know, not everybody is connected to each other and it's not meant to work that way but by gossiping uh, information and disseminating information uh, loosely Uh, it it eventually works out and I think it's a more robust solution to uh, you know problems of like censorship and internet problems Uh, another change I made to the protocol is like uh, uh, let's see another change I made to the protocol is uh, adding uh, this this notion of bonding of coins and uh, that that's a solution to the problem of uh, changing participation So the way that a blockchain ever forks is you know there's two blocks at the same height two different blocks at the same height and uh if you have the condition that before a block is considered committed um, by the network uh, if you have the condition that two-thirds or more of voting power however you define it if two-thirds or more of voting power is required to consider a block to be confirmed um, and what I mean by voting power confirming, what I mean is they sign the block or the block hash. Um, if if so, then if two blocks were confirmed, then it means that at least one third of the validators who signed uh, the block signed duplicitously. And what I mean is they, you know, they signed two blocks at the same height. They're basically being two-faced liars. And the nice thing is, there's uh, there's a way. There's evidence. It's a very short evidence, and it can be inserted into the the blockchain, and their their bond can be uh, destroyed as a penalty. The problem with (laughs) assessing the security of a cryptocurrency is uh, ensuring that not only is it uh, tolerant to uh, Byzantine actors who are trying to double spend, it also has to be tolerant to all the participants being, uh, greedy, uh, or in game three, it's called rational, right? Um, th- all you, you have to assume that all the actors will do whatever they can to maximize, you know, their, their, uh, their, uh, their profit. And so, uh, a- aligning incentives is a, is another problem uh, entirely that it's not often talked about, um, there was a mention of it in the uh, in the paper called uh, "The Majority Is Not Enough." Uh, I don't know if you've read that one. Um, it's about how the majority of hashing power in Bitcoin is not sufficient, considering the incentive uh, alignment of all the participant miners. But rather, uh, it turns out maybe the best solution uh, is that the ne- the Bitcoin network is only tolerant to a quarter of uh, the mining power being centralized to some. Uh, Cartel
0: and so what was the reasoning behind it being uh, you know, the majority not being enough
1: the the attack is called uh, What is it called? It's like you uh, by not Publishing the blocks that you find right away, uh, but rather uh, Hiding your block and keeping it private to your mining pool um, You can always delay publishing that block or even a whole set of blocks if you've mined a whole lot you can delay publishing that until uh, you realize that the network has found an alternative block now if you delay it and make everybody mine for another solution when you already have another uh, a solution meaning the next block uh, you, you you make everybody else waste their mining power and so by utilizing this technique of hiding uh, the block solution, uh, you make everybody else waste more energy. And uh, I don't know more of the details as well to explain it right now, but it, the tolerance of the network to uh, these kind of actors uh, drops down from 50, 50% to 25%.
0: That's interesting. It's another angle that the, um, an external handicap to Come to consensus over, you know, runs into uh additional problems. But uh, let's uh let's go back on with um with Tendermint as we were. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, well, yeah, I, th- I think it just goes to show you that uh finding uh, uh ensuring that the security of a cryptocurrency protocol uh, is robust is a very difficult thing to do. So, what I aim to do with Tendermint and the original motivations for it, uh, besides. Uh, solving the proof-of-work problem, which uh, I think is a big problem in itself, but to uh, limit the security in such a way that it is easy to reason about. So, you know, Tendermint is all about bonding your coins um, and ensuring that in the case of a double-spend attack, um, the cost to doing so is extremely high because uh, launching a double-spend attack, which means forking the blockchain, uh, means that one-third of all bonded coins gets destroyed. And so if you take that out of the equation by saying double spends are expensive, then the analysis becomes much simpler. It, it turns out that it has a lot of other benefits too, such as um, it confirms much faster. So today in Bitcoin or proof-of-work algorithms, you know, it takes an hour to confirm a transaction. In fact, uh, for a large transaction, you should you should actually wait much longer than one hour, um, and that's going into um, the the cost of launching a double spend attack and such. But um, in uh, in, a, in a proper Byzantine consensus protocol, it doesn't have to take that long. Um, all you need to do is get enough signatures from all the uh, validators. Uh, and uh, that's really limited by the bandwidth of the network. And I've done some preliminary uh, simulations, and it, it tells me that with a, a set of, say, a thousand or uh, even 10,000 validators, uh, it's completely feasible to have a block that commits uh, at uh, every minute or so. And what I mean by confirm is. Uh, It doesn't fork so once you see the next block and once you have uh the the commit signatures it's
0: completely confirmed so you don't have to wait for this uh, probabilistic confirmation
1: yeah yeah you don't have to wait for you know uh, confirmation for six blocks Uh, you know before i started working on this uh i I was actually working on a an altcoin uh, exchange and uh i had to write code that interfaces with, uh, you know, Bitcoin D, Dogecoin D, you know, all these diamonds. And uh, the hardest thing about it was the logic that ensures that in the case of a, a blockchain fork, it's able to handle that. It's able to, you know, um, undo the transactions. You know, it it's gets really complicated. It would be much better if the cryptocurrency really, really penalized uh the event of a blockchain fork so that you just don't really have to worry about it as much
0: yeah i suppose you don't see that from from the outside you know as a layman i have no idea what's really going on you know so you, I, I never uh i never have that experience of the intricacies of these different protocols and what makes them uh you know difficult to deal with or, or more easy to deal with as the case may be
1: yeah it's it's just a nightmare i don't want to deal with it ever again <laughs>
0: That's interesting. It's I've never heard anyone mention that that, um, <laughs> you know, maybe that's just one of the one of the secrets that uh, that all of these uh, that those in the know kind of keep under their belts.
1: I, I think they just take it for granted. You know, I took it for granted when I was working on it, too. But uh, it, it uh, after I realized that there was a better solution, now it seems obvious, but it, it wasn't obvious at the time. And uh, going back to the security of, uh, you know, say, Bitcoin. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I I wrote this exchange um, so that after six blocks, um, you know, a transaction is considered confirmed. So that means um, in my exchange software that I wrote, after I see that there were six blocks after, uh, you know, a, a transaction, a deposit transaction, uh, that money is considered uh, committed and it's available to the user to trade. But um, it turns out that six blocks transactions is not necessarily enough and the way I reason about this is uh, I use a heuristic and uh, I don't I don't hear a lot of people talking about it so you know it's maybe uh, I'm being a little controversial here but um I think we should talk we should think about the security of a blockchain in terms of what is guaranteed um, to be the cost uh or the penalty of a double spend attack um and you can think about the penalty of a double spend attack and, and divide it into two categories right one is an extrinsic penalty or an intrinsic penalty uh, in the case of a double spend attack in bitcoin um, what is the penalty for a blockchain fork that goes back longer than six blocks it's um, it's the electricity that the mining network spent mining those six blocks that are going to be uh, obsolete. Um, it might be uh, the depreciation of the cost of the mining equipment. Uh, it might be the depreciation of the cost of the Bitcoins that the miners hold. But a lot of you know these are extrinsic costs and that means that uh, it's not well defined like a miner. Doesn't necessarily have to hold a whole lot of bitcoins. They might even have a net negative position on bitcoins uh, if they have access to, you know, certain markets where they allow um, shorting it. Um, And in terms of the cost of the mining equipment, um, you know, besides the chip that does the hashing, you know, a lot of that equipment is uh, reusable. So what do miners really lose in the event of a double spend attack? If you look at the absolute guaranteed cost of it, it, there's not a whole lot besides the electricity that was spent for six blocks, right? But the analysis of security is much simpler when you consider something like Tendermint. You know, uh, in the event of a double spend attack, um, one third of bonded coins are lost. That's a significant amount of coins, depending on how much coins have been bonded, and that's that can be tweaked by uh, the inflationary reward of uh, for the validators and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a more guaranteed and quantifiable value. So I think it's much better.
0: That's interesting because you've got this, I mean, with Bitcoin, you have mining, right? That's always seemed to me like a way for external forces to get their teeth into the incentives, you know, the incentive structure of the protocol and mm. potentially manipulate it. It's a, it imports this complexity into the system that really shouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean every you know,
1: most people take it for granted that yeah, you know, if a nation state wanted to attack Bitcoin, they really could because, you know, they have access to energy and chip manufacturing and, um, you know, but actually there's a way around that. You don't have to uh, <laughs> there's a way to create a coin that is so secure that it's very robust and uh, It'll stay up as long as people have a connection to communicate to each other Do you drink a beer when you're doing this? I usually drink tea.
0: I had a beer like two hours ago, but I have to stay somewhat uh... <laughs> I talk better after uh, after a beer So, Welcome to today's sponsor segment This is the first time we've had a sponsor for the show, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about BIP38wallets.com. Not just because they provide a great service and gave me some sweet LTBC, but also because it's a chance to look at BIP38, which is a pretty fundamental BIP. Mike Caldwell put forward his password-protected private keys proposal in 2012, which was quickly included in the Bitcoin Core, as BIP38. I'll put a link to the original proposal in the notes. This is where the standardised ability to encrypt wallets came from. The idea of paper wallets is fantastic, for one they give you that anachronistic comfort of holding a tangible representation of value, like a week's paycheck, which is a sensation that's been lost to virtually the entire civilised world. More than that though, they represent a great cold storage or backup option, and make for a much more ceremonious gift than a hey go check your balance. One drawback of unencrypted paper wallets was exposed back in December 2013 when Matt Miller, the Bloomberg reporter, exposed the QR code of his paper wallet's private key on live TV. It's common sense that any wallet, whether stored locally, online or on paper, should be encrypted. By displaying a BIP38 encrypted private key on a paper wallet, instead of an unencrypted wallet import format, or WIF key, only a person with both the key and the encryption passphrase can access the funds. The paper wallets offered by bit38wallets.com are waterproof greaseproof and tear proof they also come with your choice of picture or you can go with the default mother cat hugging her kitten for two bucks fifty delivered they're a steal back to jay what kind of deployments are you looking at for tendermint
1: that's a great question and it's something that i'm struggling with today because I've spent the past six months developing the protocol and actually coding it, and uh, now it's time to think about how this is going to go forward. Um, I have some idea uh, about the way the you know the future of cryptocurrencies is going to play out, but uh, in terms of where to go forward now, it's really up to the people you know who are listening to this and. Who hear about Tendermint to come forward and say that they have uh, a way, uh, they have a need for a cryptocurrency, um, and uh, I think it's about finding the right partnership. You know, and the opportunities I think will come, um, and I'm open to suggestions. The, this whole project is going to be open source, free software, so there's no reason why uh, we can't work together. And the purpose of Tendermint is not to create just one coin, but a whole ecosystem of coins that work together. Um, so, you know, things like uh, Overstock.com is working with Counterparty to, uh, to put uh, uh, corporate shares on the blockchain. Well, I think they should be using Tendermint. I think uh, Counterparty is a great protocol. You know, there's a lot of great uh, innovations that are going on it. But for their consensus, they're using uh, Bitcoin right? Uh, and Bitcoin's proof of work and backing on it. What they really should be doing is uh, running their own consensus blockchain, and Tendermint is a way to do that. Um, if, you know, this could work for all kinds of technologies that are being developed today. Um, you know, name something like Ethereum. Ethereum should be using Tendermint as its consensus protocol.
0: I was reading a quote that something that Vitalik said. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, he basically said that. These blockchains and these consensus algorithms, they're just supposed to work. There's not supposed to be any anything going on. That you don't want any user involvement. You want them to just do their thing and be secure and something that you can just populate and then forget about, and it will work. And it seems like Tendermint is the closest to a system like this that uh, that's come along that doesn't require... Some kind of centralized approach, like you have with the delegates and bit shares, which is is an approach that has its own advantages.
1: Uh, yeah, or- you know, yeah. Um, it, it, the way Peercoin um, originally had, you know, uh, centralized checkpointing. I don't know what they have now, but. Uh, and you know, delegates for uh, bit shares, um, it's, I think uh, it's sort of an incomplete solution because the users still have to be able to accurately judge the uh, trustworthiness of a, of a delegate. Um, yeah, I think Tendermint is, is great because it really takes uh, – uh, you don't have to trust anyone because it's sort of all automatic. It really depends on how much money they bond. So – you don't have to trust them. Let them put their money where their mouth is and then you can, you know that they're going to abide by the protocol.
0: I was talking to, I talk, spoke with Justice Ranvier a couple of times on here and something he pointed out was that one of the really powerful things about the Bitcoin protocol is that it uses uh, computational power as a handicap against double spending or attacking the network, which we've already addressed. And what I find with uh, Reading Tendermint is, I get the impression that rather than using computational power as the handicap, you're using uh, this, you're using time preference. By bonding the coins, you know you forego the ability to, to use them right now, but you gain the, the inflationary uh, seniorage. and you know, by by that mechanism you you secure the network as opposed to, um, as opposed to just securing it based on the consensus of everyone who owns uh, who owns stake.
1: If I were to compare, um, and there are pros and cons to, say, the comparison between Proof of Work and something like Tendermint, um, it is that uh, with something like Bitcoin, uh, as long as if I download the Bitcoin software today and I wait, Like two years, and then I start syncing up with the blockchain. um, I'm probably going to find the correct, honest blockchain that everybody is working on, as long as the protocol hasn't changed, as long as the protocol hasn't changed significantly. Um, But uh, with Tendermint, you're right, it, it takes an element of time, it introduces an element of time that simplifies it. But in some ways, it makes it a little different. And this is what I mean. Um, the unbonding period is uh, something, you know, it could be something preset, but the purpose of it, you know, it's supposed to be something long. Let's say it's a year, right? Um, as long as new users who are connecting to the network resync uh, their blockchain within that window, that, um, and as long as no you know no validators do anything as silly as losing a third of their whole you know bonded <laughs> coins then uh, they are guaranteed to be able to find the correct blockchain and they can sync all the way to the tip and uh, so it, so this unbonding period of time creates a bubble in which people can resync and as long as they resync within that bubble they'll stay within it um, when uh, when they don't, what might happen, and this is unlikely, but it could happen, and I'm trying to be very rigorous, you know, with something as important as a cryptocurrency protocol, um, there might be something called a long-range attack, where uh, the blockchain is forked from a long time ago. And, you know, this may be possible because uh, most of the validators who are active, say, two years ago, uh, have unbonded and they've moved their coins over to some other address. And so now they have the freedom to to fork the blockchain, right? Um, and you know there are ways to counter that too. You you know you can use something like uh, you can calculate the economic activity of a blockchain. You know calculate uh, how much volume there is measured by you know something like coin days destroyed, and you can kind of heuristically determine what the true blockchain is. And uh, more likely for a major cryptocurrency network this will never happen but just to be secure you should update your client and sync with the network uh every so often
0: so that's that's the trade-off
1: and i think it's a
0: reasonable one well there's a trade-off with everything isn't there yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know that's definitely uh i mean look at how many protocols we have and how much uh you know how much endless uh, refinement is going on it's because every step of the way someone makes an advancement but they sacrifice something somewhere that someone else then picks up on and and carries it forward which yeah i mean that's what we're talking about with bitcoin and uh, and reimagining the blockchain um right yeah. now
1: and consensus in general you know you ha- you can't have consensus in the absence of any assumption you have to make some kind of trade-off and um, I don't want to trade off, you know, I, I don't want to have proof of work that like wastes energy, you know, maybe someday in the future where we all have solar panels and we have like all this excess energy, and we don't know what to do with it, then Bitcoin might work. But still, I still want an ecosystem of sovereign blockchains that are secure on its own right, you know, and you can't have that with proof of work easily um, or maybe not at all. You know, like uh, I want to be able to have a a future where a new blockchain can just be born and, you know, maybe it'll start off with like 50 people. Maybe they represent some kind of some kind of local, you know, farm timeshare or something or a company. And uh, it it should be secure as long as they wanted to make it secure, you know.
0: But shouldn't there just be one type of money?
1: Uh, (laughs) Oh, you know. ah. that's a great question, and, I, and I, wonder, I wonder about that all the time. I think that we uh, tend to go towards only one type of money because we haven't had the Internet and the computer until now. So if you think about the way to represent wealth and value um, in the absence of computers, then it makes sense to have a single unit of value but with all this technology that we have today, it, it, we no longer have to. We can represent value as um, a, a vector of coins. You know, it doesn't have to be a scalar. It could. Uh, we can represent value as shares in you know multitude of countries and companies. Like hedge funds already do this. You know, they live in a world where. Uh, most of the wealth in the world is not in currency; it's in the stock market. It's in, it's in you know corporate stocks and derivatives and all that. And money is just this this blood currency that everybody happens to use, but it's not the biggest thing.
0: Uh, you mentioned hedge funds and um, and how they uh, they will they amalgamate these this large number of uh, of assets. Um, because um Supernet is um is doing that you know jail 777's uh mm-hmm. he he does a lot of development on uh, on next and one thing he's done is make a uh has develop a, a kind of a i guess a, a mutual fund that holds a bunch of promising altcoins mm-hmm. try, uh, he's trying to buy up 10% of each promising altcoin and use them to um Basically amalgamate all of their capabilities into um, like a single wallet, so that they can all access each other's capabilities by transferring between the chains. It's mm-hmm. um, it's a really interesting um, like concession to the idea that there will be multiple there will be multiple currencies and multiple chains, and that's not really something that can be uh, that can be avoided or even should be. Yeah,
1: um, I think there's going to be pressure from uh, existing powers to make sure they stay dominant and we see that in the political global landscape today but yeah i haven't looked too much into supernet it sounds great you know just the idea of not focusing on one blockchain or one currency but um uh being invested in a lot of them uh is is i think a solid idea
0: many people do i know it's what i do i mean I, i own a ton of different currencies uh just because they all have their own purposes, I get paid in L T B coin and I've recently been paying to have some web development done mm-hmm. in LTB coin. And you know, it's just suddenly you find like, wow, this is actually worth something. Yeah, you know, I never yeah. really realized that this has tremendous utility.
1: And it's it's not about you know, it's not about the coin or the technology necessarily even. It's really about the people behind it and like what binds them together, you know, in the case of something as, you know, ethereal as you know, like, Dogecoin, like, what does that represent? It's just, it's just fun. You know, people, it's people. And, uh, it's, it's people coming together and saying, let's try this out. Um, and and there's a question of, you know, people might counter and say, we need to have one money because that's the best way to represent value of something. You know, what is the value of, uh, this cup of coffee? It's, you know, a dollar 50 cents. Um, I don't think that's going to be true uh, in the age of computers. I, I think uh, we might want to separate out the the question of how to account for assets and uh, how to make them tradable versus how to calculate one's uh, uh, one's uh, one's wealth. So, you know, today everybody sort of takes for granted that you know I have this much money in the bank, and uh, you know. The, the Fed will manage the inflation rate for me, so I don't have to worry too much about what that number means. You know, I'm always going to be able to buy a cup of coffee if I have so much money in the bank. But um, we might want to separate that out. There might be a, there might be an independent service that uh, is able to calculate, you know, sort of uh, the viability of each currency and kind of tell you, you know, this is how much you have based on… Your portfolio right Uh, it's not it may not be a concrete number there may be a competition of these uh, services that try to calculate this for you but there's no reason to have one
0: it flies in the face of um, of using the free market to find what a good type of money is
1: yeah (laughs) we we need a free market of money so bad do you, do, are you familiar with the history of like how the US dollar was born and how the Federal Reserve was born and it's like uh, when I when I look into that stuff when I look into the history of money um, it's pretty clear that in the beginning um, these people had no idea like uh, they were like lending uh, you know financial instruments to each other you know between banks and uh, just inflating the money supply willy-nilly And then they uh, found out through accident that, uh, oh, shoot, there's a money supply problem. (laughs) We have a problem with adjusting the money supply. Um, And that's because, you know, the money was, um, the banks were acting as a fractional reserve, you know, and uh, there wasn't a lot of transparency there. But, um, and it's weird the way it evolved. It seemed like the way it evolved, it sort of took um, fractional reserve as a given and kind of sanctioned it. And then uh, instead, as a band-aid, as a duct tape, what you have is like a Federal Reserve that tries to uh, tweak the money supply using interest rates. And uh, that apparently didn't work out very well because we've had another issue in 2008. And uh, actually, a lot of people probably don't know about this, but uh, the Federal Reserve changed their monetary policy in 2008 now they have this thing called – interest paid on excess capital reserves and so it's not so much of a fractional reserve system anymore but you know the big guys don't know what they're doing either
0: there's another thing that we were going to talk about and that was uh that was side chains because i know you've got a lot of thoughts on side chains and that kind of ties into this idea of a protocol that um or a technology that works well as an ecosystem of sovereign blockchains
1: yeah, um, and uh, I think the paper, um, and I agree, I think side change is going to be um, a crucial uh, area of innovation in the future. Um, and I think uh, the paper by Blockstream um, is, is, a, is a great start. Um, they up. they talk about this uh, concept called uh, DMMS, which is a dynamic membership multi-party signatures. And, uh, you know, just, it's just a concept. You know, it means uh, tracking the consensus of a blockchain. Um, and the way they try to solve it is, um, you know, they say proof of work is good. You know, it works as a DMMS. Um, and I want to say, and there's another way to do DMMS, you know, using signatures the way Tendermint does. I don't go too much into the, to this right now in the white paper, but uh, I, I will write it out. Um, first I want to focus on getting uh, the core right before I focus on sidechains but that is high on the priority um, but yeah sovereign blockchains is the way it's going to play out I, there's a criticism, uh, critique of this paper by Dominic Williams um, who I respect very much and uh, he criticizes the Blockstream paper and says um, that uh, the two-way peg uh it's not necessarily the you know the only solution to sidechains and i agree um you know um two-way pegging meaning having say bitcoin and having another sidechain um and tying the value uh the the value of the of the units between those two blockchains such that you know you can transfer bitcoins from the bitcoin network to uh the uh sidechain network and uh they add, you know um, if you had one Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network and you move them over, you still have one Bitcoin. It's just on another network. I think I think that I think that's a great idea in terms of sharding. So, you know, in the way that um, sharding helps with performance. If there's too much uh, to process within one blockchain, then you want to shard it out that way. But uh, that's still one coin, you know. And if you want to support if you want to push for the innovation of new technology, what you really want to do is have uh, not two-way pegging, but sort of a, a partial backing of this new coin. So you can use side chains to um, to sort of guarantee um, that um, the the unit of this side chain coin is worth at least you know so much, and give it like a minimum value, and uh, it could be guaranteed. By uh, the main chain and you know this could be baked into the protocol and i think that's a great way to bootstrap a new coin and give it value and it'll uh it'll stabilize the value of it in the beginning um and i think that's more interesting than just two-way pegging and uh, so you know my point is side chains are great it's more than just two-way pegging
0: i've always been interested in these all of these stealth um all these stealth coins i wonder what the real value is In a stealth coin when um good information hygiene you know can prevent or can ensure your pseudonymity you know what i
1: mean
0: Mm -hmm. oh i see what you mean by stealth and i think that's a great topic um
1: so yeah so you mean things like zero coin which is completely anonymous zero coin dark
0: coin like what's 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 the point you know um i think you did mention that transparency is the most powerful feature of the blockchain Yeah, or something and, along those lines. Mm-hmm.
1: Especially uh, during the development of it. I mean, yeah. Um, but also in the uh, the economic activity of it, I think, uh, you know, it, the question is, let's just say there are two coins or two systems. In one system, uh, you know, when you buy something or when you have money, uh, uh, you're pseudonymous. So it's not clear uh, who you are on the blockchain, but you can kind of see the economic activity of the overall system um, versus another one where you have no idea what's going on. Um, you have no idea who owns what coins and things just happen. I mean, maybe somebody moved like, I don't know, $10 trillion uh, yesterday. You, you wouldn't know. Um, I don't feel comfortable uh, using a currency that is that anonymous. Um, I, I would rather opt for a partially anonymous or pseudonymous system like Bitcoin... Where, you know, if you want to hide um, some of your, you know, uh, your uh, physical activity, you can do it by means of, you know, um, uh, what, what are they called? Uh, pools of... Uh,
0: Oh, like mixes and stuff. Yeah,
1: mixers, right, right. Mixers are, you know, you can also bake in some other things to the protocol, um, such as proxies, um, you know, you can you can or coin join. There's many ways to get around it. And I'm comfortable with that because everybody might have, you know, a little discretion or they want to do that isn't tied to them um, for various reasons. But when it comes to large amounts of financial activity, I, I kind of want to know. And it's it also ties into the question of the security of the coin. Um, a lot of these systems use, you know, like very you know, advanced cryptography, and I don't, I don't trust it until I really understand it, and I don't want to spend time understanding it.
0: That's a really critical uh, point: is that how easily a, a protocol is understood, how simple it is, is really mm. fundamental.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah, it comes down to, I think what it comes down to is, uh, you know, it, it's about society. You know, it's about who you want to network with and who you want to deal with. And I, I support the existence of, you know, stealth coins. Um, I think they're great to have. I don't see, uh, them taking over, uh, pseudonymous coins at all. I don't see them gaining massive market share because I don't see people supporting
0: it. Although they are like you know they're really they're big in the market right now. I mean, all, look at all the top coins. I mean, it's it's uh, largely about. Um, it seems that that at least to speculators, um, anonymity is what they look for or what they value in in a coin.
1: What what what, what is uh what is the list like? Are you talking about like Corn Cap? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that. I'll check it out right now. All right. Okay. Yeah. So starting at all right, we've got dark. Oh, look at that! No, I'm I'm totally. Uh, that's not the case at all. We've got dark coin at nine. Monero, right. Monero's is a uh, another stealth one. Mm-hmm. Banks shares, Bitcoin, dark.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it was was the case a little while ago, you know, but it seems that that's. Uh-huh. Uh, it's funny how quickly something like that can change. Yeah, yeah. This is a very volatile market. <laughs> Isn't just. Yeah. Unjust.
1: yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, it might happen, you know, it's just my preference. I just personally choose not to use stealth coins. That's all it is. I don't really try to hide my uh, Bitcoin activity. You know, maybe I'll get in trouble for it one day. I don't care. I'm not hurting anyone. I just don't really feel like hiding.
0: There's this idealistic, you know, push to have this immaculate information hygiene. Mm -hmm. But really, I mean, look, I'm doomed anyway.
1: Yeah, you never know who's listening when you're using a computer and it, you know, that problem gets exacerbated when you're talking about, you know, totally anonymous coins, you know. You might I mean, it's bad enough in in Bitcoin that when Mt. Gox went down, there was no repercussion. People were just like, "Oh, those coins can gone," right? Um but I, I imagine that in the future, we're going to have a competition between uh, even, you know, pseudonymous coins like that, where they're so hands off versus maybe more managed coins. You know, when you have something like Tendermint, you could uh, potentially opt for a system where um, uh, if, an, if a large enough uh, percentage of voters decide, you know, like, we have to reverse these transactions because they were obviously just stolen, um, you know, that's possible. Um, and I don't know how I would think about that, but it's an option to consider. And, uh, yeah, money should be something fungible or you know, something that uh, if you lose it, you lose it, right? Um, but there are other kinds of mechanisms of tracking you know, value and other things that uh, might even require a degree of uh, identity, Um so we might see different uh, systems emerge altogether. Um, so I, I'm excited to see what happens in the future and uh, I want to support all of it.
0: <laughs> awesome. Hey, with uh, on that note, is are there any, uh, how can people get in touch with you, learn about your project, et cetera? Yeah. Um, the website.
1: As we're speaking now, um is a bit outdated, but by the time listeners are hearing this, uh you should just go to tendermint.com and uh, all the information will be there.
0: Uh, well it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Jay. Um
1: uh, it's, pleasure's been all mine, Arthur.
0: Yeah, no, great. I uh, I look forward to seeing how all this goes, uh how Tendermint progresses. I actually um Tim Swanson suggested I get in touch with you. Um oh, I should right have I should have yeah. got in touch with him and told him that um that we were gonna Catch up because you know he yeah he was really great talking about um, uh, joining in with uh, Hyperledger and those guys. How do you know Tim Swanson, by the way?
1: I how do I know? I don't know. We just started talking about we found each other through discussions of proof of work, you know, and the viability of it. And he has a great book out that goes into great detail of uh, the economics of Bitcoin. Um, and so we just kind of connected through that. I which which book was that? Uh, of of numbers, uh, if you go to ofnumbers.com, you can find
0: the book. Yeah, right. I haven't read the. Um, I read I read Great Chain of Numbers, but not. Um... Oh, that's just the name of his blog, Of Numbers. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. He's, I know he's got he's got three books. I don't. I, you know, I haven't. Uh, I only only read the one. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Cool. All right. Yeah. All right, well, let's see. I look forward to reading the uh, the new white paper.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll I'll get it done. I'll get it done. You'll be the first to know that. Thanks, man. It'll be
0: done this That's week. Sweet. All right. See you, Arthur. Thanks for listening guys. It looks like we're on a once every two week schedule for the time being. But if I can keep finding people like Jay to come on, quality should more than make up for quantity. Today's magic word is BIP38, that's bip 38 Thanks to Cesis for the tunes, links are in the notes, and you can reach me at beyondbitcoinshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com.